Every passage that Pastor Cole has somebody read on Sunday morning has beauty and significance on its own, but this one that he asked me to read this morning carries its own very, very special meaning for me, and he allowed me 30 seconds to tell you why. A year and a half ago, almost two years ago, I was given a diagnosis of breast cancer, and as many of you know, when you walk through cancer, there are multiple opportunities to fear. As a matter of fact, fear will hit you at every turn. But the one thing more powerful than fear is the word of God and standing on his promises and knowing it. And as I walked through this journey, I began to recite this psalm. Every surgery that I went through, every treatment that I went through, I would lay there and I would say this psalm out loud. And the thing that would have paralyzed me with fear, I began to feel completely protected and powered by peace. So if you're ever going to memorize a psalm, this is the one. Because if you go to prison, you don't have your Bible, this is the one that you want to know. Or you want me with you so I can recite it for you. Um, so I was very excited to uh, say the psalm today because it is what transformed my journey. I wasn't miraculously healed. I'm on the other side of it now. I wasn't miraculously healed, but the journey itself was transformed by peace, and that is how I would want to walk through every journey, knowing the word of God as it trumps all fear. So here's Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shall you trust. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flieth by day, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with your eyes will you behold and see the reward of the wicked." Because he has set his love, mm, you might not want me in prison with you. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear thee up in your hand, their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shall you trample under feet. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. Thank you. And the way that psalm has worked in her life. And so I want to turn your attention to this psalm this morning, but I want to step back and say something about it before we begin. By way of the fact that I've been reading a lot more children's books now than I used to. 
and um, Davey loves books, and so we've got tons of books at our house, and so we've done a pretty good survey of the available children's literature out there. And I've noticed that kids' books do one of several things. You've got kind of your run-of-the-mill children's book that's just mostly pictures. In fact, some of them are only pictures, and you kind of have to make up your own story or find the different things. Some of them have words and pictures. But the best children's books are active children's books. These are the books that have something for the child to do while they're reading the book. So, for example, maybe they have shapes, but it's not just, hey, this is a circle. You put your finger in the circle, and you trace it around to learn what it is. Or this is a texture book, and so we have one that has all these animals in it, and in the middle of the animal, it has a little cutout with the animal's fur. And so as you're reading it, you're engaging with and you're petting these animals. And what I've noticed is kids learn a million times more if the book brings them into some kind of action with the book. If you passively read these children's books, you don't learn very much. But if you go through this book maybe once or twice where you are active, you are touching it, you're feeling it, you're talking about it, they learn those books immediately. And in fact, her favorite books are the ones where the authors know something essential about human nature. You learn best when you participate in what's going on. My contention for you this morning is that the Psalms are that kind of book. The Psalms are not a book just to sit back and say and listen to and say, well, that's kind of an interesting way to put it. The Psalms actually are like a book where as we read these, we put our hands in the Psalms and figure out what it is that they're doing. We, we put our hearts in a well-worn track and follow the movement of these Psalms. And in our Psalm this morning, what you're going to see is when you participate in this Psalm, when you actually go in and you start to pray it and you turn it around in your mind and you live it, you'll realize that what God is doing is not just speaking something to you. He's calling you into action from fear to faith. That Actually, this is a well-worn, God-given path for your heart in times of fear. So I want you, as you're listening this morning and as you're reading this psalm along with me, to participate in this psalm. Put your heart in the psalm and watch what God does to shape you as we talk about this. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago as I was thinking about this series, and each summer, like every church, we have been doing some psalms in our summer series. And I, I don't know really why churches like to do the psalms in the summer. I don't know if it's just because you can have guest preachers or just feels like less prep for the pastor. I think the Psalms are even more prep because they are so consuming of the whole person. And I was reading this article, and it was talking about how most of the problems that we have in life come in five categories, four of which are emotions, and one of which is kind of a hybrid. The, the five are fear, anger, grief, guilt and shame, and temptation. Fear, anger, Grief, guilt and shame, and temptation. And the author's argument was, no matter what you're going through, chances are 99% of the time, it can go into one of these categories. And so it got me thinking, okay, if that's the case, 
And we have these psalms that are teaching us to navigate all of these areas. Why not spend five weeks, one week on each one of these areas to help train our own hearts when we feel fearful or angry, when we're grieving, when we're racked with guilt, when we're tempted? Do we have somewhere to go? Do you have a handle to hold on to in your Bible when you're struggling with fear? So this morning, I want to show you what this psalm says about fear because most of us, in one way or another, are fearful of something. And in fact, if you look around, the reason this is so important is fear, and fear goes by a lot of different names. So, so I want to I expand what we're talking about, not just to being afraid of something, but fear can go by anxiety, worry, tension. You can be uptight, scared, panicked. You can be reluctant. You can be in a state of dread, you can just be resistant for a reason that you don't know, and all of these would be under the same category of what the Bible talks about with fear. And if you look around our world today, one of the things is fear is everywhere in our world. And while I will say not all fear is bad, as we're going to see this morning, actually fear is in and of itself kind of a neutral thing. Fear is a pointer to other things that are going on in our life. But I do want to make this observation. As a society, we have sky-high anxiety rates, and it's just continuing to go up. In fact, the younger you are, the more prone you are to fear and anxiety. And what's interesting to me is what we're going to talk about with fear is fear is actually revealing that something you love is under threat. Something that you love is under threat, and so you feel fear. And one of the reasons I think fear is more common in our society today is because our loves are changing. Our loves are changing. And while, like I said, not all fear reveals that you love the wrong thing, what I can say is if you love the wrong thing, you will constantly live with fear and anxiety. And so this, this psalm this morning is honest with us about fear. It's godly in its perspective about fear. It's not condemning about fear, but it is reassuring that fear actually points us to what it is that we love. The reason it's important to talk about emotions is because when we say the word emotion, most people have some kind of polarizing response to it. In fact, as a society, we have two main approaches to emotions. The first one is we want to indulge emotions. That is, your emotions, they are visceral, they are deep into who you are, and in fact, they are truer about you than the other aspects of your person. That if you feel passionately about something, how could you argue with that? It comes from deep down into who you are. It's, it's a symptom of a culture that believes the most authentic and truthful thing you can do is look into yourself and find what you believe the most and find what's truest about you and express that out into the world. So we live in a world where on one hand people say emotion and emotions are not to be argued with. They are just to be expressed and indulged. And on the flip side, like with most things, there's a pendulum swing to the other side, like emotions are not true, they should be avoided, and you get this kind of stoicism, like anything that's of emotion can't be true. It's a fleeting, temporary, gut kind of decision, so you can't trust it at all. In fact, we have versions of this in the church. We've kind of baptized these visions of emotions in the church, where the indulgent side of emotions is our authentic self connecting with ourself, being the true us that God has created us 
to be. And there's an element of truth in that. And, and on the flip side, we have this kind of Christian stoicism where there are no negative emotions allowed. If you come to church, you better look like you are praising God and giving Him thanks because anything else would be dishonoring to God. There's an ounce of truth in that as well, but it's the same kind of misguided approach to emotions. The Bible's picture is not to indulge our emotions or to ignore our emotions, but to engage our emotions, to engage our emotions, which brings me to fear. Fear, as I said, is a referred emotion. Fear in and of itself actually isn't anything. It's a pointer to something deeper that's going on inside of us. When we are afraid or we are anxious or we are upset about something, it's because there's something a layer down from our fear that we're worried about. There's something going on in our heart that we love that is being threatened. That could be another person. It could be a thing. It could be a vision of the future. It could be a vision of ourselves. It could be control. There's a million things, but fear in and of itself is neutral. But fear because you love the wrong thing is something the Bible wants to take you and God wants to walk with you to transform your loves onto things that you never have to fear that they will be threatened. So the psalmist in the beginning of this psalm opens with one of the most beautiful lines in the Psalter. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The person who makes God, the Most High, their shelter, their refuge, that person will dwell up next to God so close that you live in his shadows. I had been perplexed about this line all week because it seems like a total redundancy. The person that lives with God will live with God. That's just kind of what it struck me as I couldn't figure out what it means that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Until last night, I woke up in the middle of the night with this storm, and I was thinking to myself about this psalm because I was preaching it this morning. And I was running those lines over and over and over in my head, and as we were just laying there in bed, the storm just beating onto our house, I wasn't worried at all about us because of where we were. And this is not just a commercial for Clay Chapman homes, brick homes, but I was not worried at all about that because of the place that we had made our dwelling. The place that we have made our dwelling, that's not just like you check in every now and then or you walk by it or you every now and then run there when something bad happens. This is the place where we've put down our roots. This is the place where we live. Our valuables are inside. The people that we love are inside. We've brought our life, the things that we love, tangibly speaking, into this shelter and we trust it. But the second line actually says something so much more profound than that. The first line gives us a, re, a, a repicturing of what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you store up the things that you value, that is your fortress, that is your shelter. And you should make it the shelter of the Most High. But the second line says something completely different. The second line says, if you make your dwelling place with God. There's a picture here of the temple. If, if you bring your heart into the temple, you will encounter the living God. See, see, God is not just an abstract protector. And this is what you've got to see in this psalm is 
You can read this psalm a million different ways and miss the point if you believe that this is all about a physical or a health or an emotional protection. The protection that God gives is, is not just like coming into a shelter. It's coming into a shelter with a protector. See, this, this metaphor is so powerful because if you are going to be in the shadow of someone, you have to be right next to them. You have to be right next to them. And so what this first line is assuring us of is, is basically the argument of the entire psalm. If you will make the Lord your dwelling place, you will encounter not just a shelter, but the living, protecting God. See, the logic of this psalm is actually really simple. Fear means that something we love is being threatened. God can never be threatened. His plan for you can never be threatened. His love for you can never be threatened. And the life that he gives you can never be threatened. So, draw near to him. Stand next to him. His love will expel your fear. The point of the psalm is not that you won't ever fear. That's part of the human experience. It's that as you engage your fear, you'll realize you never need to fear when you love the right person. When you love God, when you dwell with him, when you're in his shadow, you'll realize pretty quickly that every fear, the further you go into it, the more it will dissipate in the shadow of the Almighty. There are three sections to this psalm. There's the opening part where the psalmist speaks. This is like prayer. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is like a person who's beginning a quiet time with God almost. They're praying. And then in the next section, in, in verses 3 through 13, you're going to have this narrator almost begin to speak to the person about what's going on. This is essentially like going to Scripture. And you open and you pray to God and, and you say, you are my refuge and I need one right now. And you read his word and it begins to say things to you. And, and from verse 3 through 13, there are some amazing, reassuring promises that are made to the psalmist. But at the end, in the last few verses, in verses 14 through 16, God speaks. God actually finishes the psalm himself. So the speaker changes in this psalm. We have three different speakers. We have the psalmist who's crying out. We have the word of God speaking to him, and then we have God himself who's speaking. In fact, this is a model for us when we feel afraid or anything for that matter. We should follow this exact same scheme. Go to the Lord and pray to him, listen to his word, and then let God speak into the situation. There's two contrasting images of God in this psalm. If you look at verse 3, it says, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you under his wings. He is, his faithfulness will be like a shield and a buckler. We get a vision of God from the outside and a vision of God from the inside. So on the outside to enemies, God appears as this strong, impenetrable shield for the people that he loves. But from the inside, the experience of going to God and dwelling with him, you get this image of a mother hen who has put her wings down to protect those who are in her care. You get the hard and powerful and wondrous side of God, and you get the tender and intimate protection of God. 
In fact, we actually see this in the very opening part of this. The psalmist uses four different names for God in the first four lines. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, the Most High God, this is El Elyon. This is what Melchizedek proclaims to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. He says, it is God Most High that we bless, and it is God Most High that has delivered you from the hands of all of your enemies. This is like a name of God that reminds us how to cut down all of our enemies to size. And that person will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This is El Shaddai. This is the powerful God who was with the patriarchs wherever they went. And he says, I will say to the Lord, this is Yahweh. This is the personal name of God. I am who I am. I am unchanging. And you can count on me to a thousand generations. He says, and my God, whom I trust. This is the personal L, just the name for God that with the possessive pronoun my becomes a comfort in times of trouble. As you get further into this psalm, it says he's going to deliver, he's going to protect. You don't need to fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence or the destruction. They're cataloging all the things that you could fear if what you love is under threat. We've got unknown terrors. We've got war and physical difficulties. We've got disease and sickness. We've got destruction externally. A thousand may fall by your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. The fear that maybe the right thing won't pan out in our lives. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil will be allowed to befall you. No external evil will be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways, and they will bear you up on their hands lest you strike even your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So you get to this point in the psalm, and there's, there's a problem that starts to emerge. Because if you've lived for more than like five minutes, you realize this doesn't always pan out. I've been, I've been through sickness before. I, I've seen some of this stuff happen. I'm a Christian. I've I dwell with the God Most High, and I've actually seen a lot of these things happen. So, so what's going on with this psalm? Well, don't read this psalm the way the devil wants you to read this psalm. And, and I say that because we actually know how the devil reads this psalm. This psalm is quoted in the New Testament, not by Jesus, not by the apostles, by the devil himself in the New Testament. It's in Jesus' temptation when he's in the wilderness and the second temptation, the devil takes him up to the top corner of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, why don't you just throw yourself down from here? And then he quotes from this psalm, because he will command angels concerning you. And they will guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus is actually hit with something really fascinating here. The devil is not misquoting Scripture. He's, he's quoting it accurately, but he's applying it incorrectly. But, but, but it's accurate to say, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. He has a mission. He's been proclaiming that he is going to be killed for his people. 
that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he is going to die, and three days later, he is going to rise from the dead. The implication of that, what, what Satan is picking up on here is, well, if that's the case, then you're invincible until that time comes. So if you would just throw yourself off the top of the temple, God would have to save you. He would have to because otherwise it would thwart his plan. This is a really fascinating way to go after Jesus. It's like saying, hey, don't you believe that if God really cares about you, he's going to keep anything bad from happening to you? Don't you believe that if you've done enough right things for God, maybe God will hold up his part of the bargain and he will make good things happen in your life? It's, it's like Satan was coming and through Jesus he was tempting all of us to, to, to have a slightly skewed vision of God. Hey, you are a son of God. In fact, you've upheld this psalm perfectly. You dwell in the shelter of the Most High. You abide with the Almighty. You've held fast to God in love. You've done all these things. What's God going to do for you? This is a very clever temptation. But you'll remember that Jesus answers Satan with Scripture. It's not from this Scripture. It's from the book of Deuteronomy where he says, you shall not put your God to the test. You shall not put your God to the test. On, on the surface level here, it's as simple as saying in verse 11, he will command his angels concerning you. That means you don't get to command his angels concerning you. God gets to decide when you need to be protected and when you don't. It's, first of all, it's as simple as that, but, but there's actually a deeper layer to this. So on the one hand, we have this psalm perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If all the psalms are this way, if you want to see what the psalms look like in human flesh, look at the life of Jesus. Jesus is the one who did all of these things perfectly, and Jesus is the one who saw all of these promises perfectly fulfilled. And there's this strange wrinkle in Jesus' life that you see the promises of God perfectly fulfilled and suffering perfectly embodied. See, God's definition of protection and our definition of protection are not always the same. God has promised to protect the things that he says will never fail. They will never end. They will never go away. He will protect those so much so that he sent his son to die, to secure those things for you forever. But Jesus also told his disciples, don't fear the person who can kill the body. And you're like, that's exactly the person we should be afraid of. Fear the person who after killing the body can throw your soul into hell. Jesus begins to reveal that his priorities, God's priorities in protecting us, align with loving the right thing, loving the right person. Consider the way that this author describes the deliverance of God. He will, in verse 3, deliver you from the snare of the fowler. I've always thought about this, like, why not just deliver you before you get into the snare of the fowler? That would be better. Just never fly into the trap in the, in the first place. That would be even better if God could do that. Secondly, he will deliver you from deadly pestilence. Well, I've got an idea. How about no pestilence? That would be wonderful. Verse 4, he will bring you under his wings as a refuge. 
What if there was just no running in the first place? Literally. And no fleeing from danger in the first place. He will be a shield and a buckler for you, which is, which is basically implying that there are things coming at you that he is protecting you from. You see that, that God's version of deliverance always looks like this. Jesus went to the cross, died a miserable, terrible, brutal death so that he could save you from death. Right, so, so part of God's pattern is that he will take you into the place where you can be free from suffering, sometimes by suffering. It's, it's this reversion of what we are born to believe is good for us, that we actually conquer death by dying. We conquer sin by dying to sin, that the punishment has been paid for us. I'll give you another example. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 21, and he's sending them out on a mission, and he says to them, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death for my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? You'll you'll be persecuted, you'll be put to death, but not a hair on your head is going to perish? What? He follows that up by saying, by your endurance, you will gain your life. We have to step back and realize Jesus is viewing things totally different than we do. You can be persecuted. You can be put to death. You you can undergo what Jesus underwent, and not a hair on your head will perish. What's up with that? This is what's so wonderful about these psalms, is it's not a quick easy answer. Just do this one thing and never experience anxiety again. It's come and dwell with the Most High. Learn how He thinks. Learn how His Spirit leads, and you will see that not a, head of, uh, not a hair on your head will perish eventually. Actually, nothing will befall you eventually. No death will hold you eventually. See, God's timetable And what he wants to do in the meantime are different than ours. But we can be assured by this psalm and by the life of Jesus that actually God will protect you from every single thing that might keep his love away from you. He will protect you from every single thing that if you are trusting in him would keep you from spending eternity with him forever. But it gets even, he has a razor's edge with this. He will keep you from every single thing that might lodge itself in your heart so that you love something else more than him. At the end of this psalm, we start to see a picture emerging. God is saying to us, put your greatest love into the things that you can never lose. It reminds me of Jim Elliott's great maxim, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There are so many things in life that we cannot keep that God will not protect us from losing. But the things that we can never lose, God has protected with the life of his son. You will never lose them. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will never go back on his promises. In fact, this is what God speaks at the end of this psalm. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. This is so key to this. Not he will not have trouble. 
I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The end of the psalm presents another question to us. What is the opposite of fear and anxiety? It might be a little bit different than you think. The, the, the opposite of being afraid is being at rest, is being at rest, is the contentment, the resolve, the confidence in what God is doing. More particularly, rest in the love of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, 18, John puts it this way, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Do you know what you'll find in the shadow of the Almighty? An indestructible love that can never leave. A a love that is so potent and sacrificial and powerful that nothing, Paul says, life or death, rulers, principalities, sickness, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I was listening to a message by Elizabeth Elliot this week called Suffering is Not for Nothing. Suffering is not for nothing. Most people know Elizabeth Elliot through her husband, Jim Elliot. And when they had been married for a couple of years, he and four others were trying to reach the Hurani people in Ecuador. And as they were making contact, they were killed by these people. And after they died... Elizabeth Elliot wrote a biography of Jim Elliot's life called The Shadow of the Almighty. In fact, his whole life was drenched with this psalm. She titled his biography The Shadow of the Almighty because she had looked to this psalm in times of great difficulty, losing her husband, knowing that he was doing the right thing, knowing that he was a missionary trying to reach people for Christ, how could God possibly let him perish when he was doing that? And in the end of the prologue of this book, she recounts her husband's last day. And on the morning that they had made contact, they knew that the the people from this tribe were going to come and meet them, and so they, they had a worship service together. And they sang this hymn, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. The words from our psalm this morning. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping, tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle, thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors, we rest with thee through endless days. She ends the prologue of the book saying, the world called their death a nightmare of a tragedy. But the world does not recognize the truth of the second clause of Jim's life credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The antidote to fear in our life is to dwell so close to God that what we love is the things that he promises we will never lose. Our fear alerts us to places in our heart where we have different priorities than God does. It doesn't mean that we can't be in pain. Pain is something that will be with us until we get to glory. But we don't need to fear in our pain that God won't come through on his promises. In verses 14 through 16, God 
lays out things that you can take forever. He is faithful. His love endures. His love is deeper than all of our fears. No matter how deep we investigate the fear that we face, we will find God there. He will be with us there. No one can ever take that away. You know, the most common promise in the Bible, the most promised command in the, in the Bible is do not fear. You see it everywhere in the Bible. And when you see it, it's not almost ever in the context of do not fear for I'm going to make your trouble go away. It's do not fear for I am with you. I am with you. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Let us pray. Father, we come to you with our fears. Lord, some of us, we have things that feel paralyzing. And Lord, we ask you this morning to help us sift through our hearts to find places where we can rest in your love for us. Father, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of disaster, Lord, our only refuge is to turn to you. Father, help us to go deep enough into our hearts to find the places where we'll meet you, to find the places where you will bear us up, you will protect us, you will hold on to us. Father, help us find the places where in our fear, your love casts out our anxieties and our dread. Father, remind us that whatever we face in this life, you are waiting for us in paradise forever. Father, remind us that though our bodies may fade, though our hopes and dreams may be dashed, Lord, with you, we will be perfect. We will be renewed. We will be fully loved. We will be as we were created to be. Everything you say in Revelation, you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All injustice will be done away with. All sorrow will be done away with because we will see you face to face. Lord, give us a hope, a conquering hope in that vision this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. As we stand to worship, we're going to take communion this morning. Communion is something that we do every week because it is a sustenance. Like we just talked about this morning, we are not just coming to do a ritual this morning. We're coming to the table of Christ. We're coming to partake of his body that was broken for us. We're coming to partake of the blood of a new covenant that seals us free from sin forever in him. We're coming because, as Paul said, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And sometimes that's the only thing that we can proclaim, is that he is coming back for us. We will be with him forever. So as those who are serving come forward this morning, come to the table of Christ. Come, make your habitation with God. Come look forward to the day when he'll wipe away every tear. He will be with us forever. Come to the Lord's table.